I think networking is free marketing is, is the way to look at it. You've got to go and invest your time. You know, maybe you're going to eat a lot more fried breakfasts than you want to, but <laughs> it's ultimately less labor intensive, I think, than even writing your own content or creating a video or even updating your social media. Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. And me, Ali Betts. Each week, we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve your writing and publishing goals. This week, we're talking to Gertrude Rett about how to get started with freelance writing. Goodwin had her first piece of work published in a national magazine 24 years ago, and she's been writing on and off ever since. She's worked with a range of clients, providing copywriting, content marketing, and repurposing, including IT and personal finance experts, digital marketers, personal trainers, coaches, and consultants. But now she's niching into history and heritage. I spoke to Goodwin about the differences between content writing, copywriting, and journalism, why they're so often confused and how to get started in your freelance writing career. Which is probably one of the most frequently asked questions we get. So it's the perfect episode to check out if you're new to freelance writing. Or if you've been freelance writing for a while and you want to learn more about someone else's experience and see what you can get from it. I definitely learned a lot listening to this episode. Yeah, I learned a lot chatting to her actually as well. It was interesting talking to someone who'd been writing for almost as long as I had, but came to it from a very different place definitely there's something for you in the episode wherever you are on your freelancing journey if you find this and or other episodes valuable you can support the writer's mindset over on patreon you can get early access to episodes bonus content and our undying gratitude for supporting all the work that goes into creating these episodes to inspire and motivate you to come join us visit patreon.com forward slash writer's mindset Instead of a personal update this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. So we're going to talk about our favorite literary tropes. So what's yours, Ellie? My favorite trope is the reluctant hero, um, which probably also speaks volumes about me torturing characters. But there's just something about the the person who is forced into that situation and has to be the one that does it and just doesn't want to. I'm thinking like um, Bilbo in The Hobbit... Um, you've got Rincewind in the Discworld series and also Stanley in one of the projects I was planning one time, which I should probably go back to. <laughs> Christina's nodding at me really aggressively. <laughs> Stanley was fun. I really enjoyed reading about him. But he was such a great reluctant hero because he just there's nothing more that he wanted than to just go home and put his feet up and have a cup of tea and and just, you know, chill with his goat, pet goat. The goat um, was amazing. I, ju- I just have to get that in. The goat was amazing. <laughs> the goat was so much fun. She was very sassy and um, had a thing for cheese. So it was a very silly project, which I definitely need to go back to, actually, the more I think about it. But having that reluctant hero who would just much rather be doing anything than the job that they've been assigned to is kind of relatable, I think, as well, when you're stuck doing your day job. <laughs> and... Um, have no choice but to carry on do it because everyone else around you is telling you you have to enforcing you uh, I mean I love my day job I swear but uh it's good fun and it's relatable I think what about you what's your favorite trope I actually found this really hard even though I came up with a question <laughs> but my favorite trope I don't really know the name for it but it's when people come to their magical powers later in life so it's things like charmed 
it's Lost Girl, it's the paranormal women's fiction stuff, which is about people realizing they have magical powers over the age of 40. And also series like Grave Talker by Annie Anderson, which is just so sassy. And it has all sorts of different fantastical creatures that I love. And she has a really sassy ghost grandfather that helps her with stuff. And the Good to the Last Death series as well is really fun. She's in a relationship with the Grim Reaper and has realized like she's super mega powerful and she has no idea what the fuck she's doing. And every time I don't know where the Good to La- the Last Death series is going, she amazes me. And she juggles how many characters there are in that series really, really well as well. They all have their own unique voices, which is brilliant and also really hard to do. So, yeah, I think that's mine. And I think it's probably for the same reason that you like The Reluctant Hero. It's that whole, oh, yeah, maybe it could happen to me someday, even though, you know, on a conscious level, it's not actually going to. It's kind of a cool idea that maybe, you know, when you turn 40, suddenly you're a witch. Here's hoping. Or just anytime. If if anyone wants to come and just give me some magic powers, don't wait till I'm 40. Um, Feel free to just drop by anytime. (laughs) Hey, I'm closer to 40 than you anyway. Let us know your favourite tropes in our free Facebook group. You can join us at writerscookbook.com forward slash Facebook group. With me today is my lovely friend, good friend, Lorette. Welcome to the Writer's Mindset. Thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. So can you just tell our lovely listeners a little bit about yourself and your background, please? Yeah, of course. So uh, I'm a copywriter and content marketer. I've been a published writer for 24 years now. Nice. Um, And at the moment, I work with all kinds of different businesses on any kind of writing that they want. But what I'm really interested in is history and heritage. So I'm trying to niche down into that. However, um, a global pandemic is not the time to niche into um, into something that's been shut the whole time and is already underfunded. So, yes, that's uh, still in the background, but, yeah, not top of the list at the moment. Sounds like you might you must write about some really interesting topics, though, when you do get to work with the history and heritage sector. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping so. I mean, I have been doing some work with a genealogist Um and that is very interesting really really varied stuff I mean because it's genealogy so you can dig into pretty much anything you know history related so yeah I learn a lot but I'm sure you'll find that as well you you learn all kinds of things you never imagined you were going to learn about yeah double glazing is my thing at the moment that I've been learning about like my (sighs) mum has um, a conservatory and a bungalow and it was fitted before she moved in and the back door to it buckles in the heat. And I discovered oh. with one of my more recent pieces, why the back door buckles? Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. And it's because it was made really badly. Oh. <laughs> it was oh. a cheap job, which means it doesn't have the kind of the support inside it that it needs to hold it together. Um. So it like in the heat, it just warps because it's got nothing to say. You need to, you know, stay straight. Yeah. And you can't tell once those things have been manufactured if they've got those supports uh-huh. in place or not and obviously the people who owned the bungalow oh. before her did a cheap job renovating cheap job. it uh, so you learn such such random interesting things mm-hmm. sometimes it's random and boring but you have to write about it anyway <laughs> and make it interesting and make it yes yeah make it interesting like double blazing going back then right to the basics because i know this is a pet peeve of mine i don't know if it bothers you as much as it does me 
But what is the difference between content marketing slash content writing and copywriting? And why do you think the two are often confused? Well, I mean, the, the original definition of, of copywriting, copy is the, is the words on a page and it comes from the advertising world um, where you produce copy to go alongside um, a picture or, you know, a billboard. So that that is literally copywriting. It's writing the, the, you know, the enticing words to persuade a customer to buy. And over time, you know, that, that I think that's a term that's applied to lots of different kinds of writing. Content marketing is not necessarily a new concept, but a new definition of a concept, um, which is about creating value. I think that there is an overlap, but I think the difference is it's about your audience. So copywriting is a purpose where you ne- might not necessarily be selling, but primarily you're selling, whereas content writing and content marketing is about providing value for the sake of providing value. Because what you want, it's that thing that we hear all the time about no like, and trust. And so that's, so it's content is the term for anything that you produce that, that's online. And sometimes that's, that's a blog, sometimes it's a video, sometimes it's a podcast like what we're doing now. So that, that is effectively the content and then the marketing is the, the promotion of it. So I think that is what I would, would describe as the difference is the content, marketing and writing. You're not intending to sell, but you will sell on the back of showing your potential customers that they can trust you and that you're the expert in double glazing or whatever it is. <laughs> How did you get side in your career then? So I wanted to be a journalist from the age of five or six. Um, and originally I wanted to be a war correspondent, but I'm very clumsy. And my mum said I would probably fall over a landmine. And so she, she <laughs> talked me out of that. And she's probably right, you know, because I'm sure I would have tripped over a landmine and, you know, like lost my arm or something. So, so writing was always what I wanted to do. And I used to I used to write little articles and, you know, show them the family. And I did some uh, work experience with newspapers, like like very old school style, um, you know, writing little insects to come on the paper. I did my uh, NCTJ journalism training when I was 19. Um, so I had a formal qualification, but before that, we had um, our local Waterstones were the people who produced um, a magazine called In Brief. I don't know if anybody remembers that. It was basically a free magazine um, for for kids, teenagers, and young people, and you get a stack of them by by the door. And this was um, reviews of recent books and also interviews with authors. And it happened to be based at my local Waterstones. And I used to go in, I used to read it. And so I decided to submit um, a review of a book I'd read. And I was, so I was 14 at the time. So I sent it in and they published it. And then I took it into my English teacher and showed her. And so she got me in to be part of that group. And so we went, uh, we met every Friday. And basically the, the organiser bring a big bag of books, throw them on the floor, and you could take as many as you wanted. Um, but you had to come back with at least one of them that you've read within that week before the next meeting and you had to write a review and then your fellow uh, members would critique it which is a bit daunting when you're <laughs> 14 um, and then it would be published and then we would also every so often we would interview an author who had a new book out so it was a bit of promo for them and so then our task was to read their entire back catalogue or as much of it as we could then we'd all sit down come up with a list of questions 
we would interview them as a group with a tape, an old-fashioned tape recorder in the middle, and everybody had to lean forward so the tape would pick them up. And then we'd take it in turns to, to transcribe it and turn that into an interview, which was then published. So that was what I started off doing. I got a couple of opportunities to go down to London. I met Nina Borden, who wrote Carrie's Wall. Um, we had tea at her house. I did a tour of Penguin Children's Books. I got a behind-the-scenes tour of the British Library. That was all free. Uh, all the expenses were paid for. And came up with a pretty good portfolio. So yeah, so that was that was how I started. So yeah, I do age myself and I say I've been writing for 24 years, but I was young when I started, honest. Yeah, me too. I'm like, I've been writing for I think it's 24 years for me as well. I can't remember. I can't do maths. It's too hot. But I was like, I started when I was seven. So does it count when you're that early? I don't know. I think so. <laughs> I started off with short stories and then it was poetry and then it was short stories and then novellas and then short stories and then novels eventually when I managed to finish one. So if someone is looking to get into content marketing, what would mm-hmm. your tips be for them? I would say the... Um... The biggest thing will be to think about niching. You know, the Americans say the riches are in the niches, and I think that's honestly true. I think there's a lot of merit to being able to write about everything and anything because, you know, then you're always going to be employable. But I really do think that if there's something you're interested in that you can make a specialism, it makes it much easier to sell yourself, and it also makes it easier if it's something you're interested in because if you write about something all the time, no matter how much you like it, it's going to get draining. And if you don't like it at all, it's even worse. So I would definitely, definitely suggest niching down. Depends on what you've been doing before. If you've already done some writing like I had, it's a bit easier. Certainly the thing to do, which is hard to, hard to advice to give, but it would be to do something for free. So um, to ask somebody if there's anything they can help, you can help them with. So even if it's just a little, you know, you write a blog or you write a product description or you, you help them improve their website, that's a good one. You can just improve their website, you know, give them some pointers on how to refresh their their content um, and build a portfolio that way. How we show our portfolios has changed, but that's really the only thing that you can do is, you know, you've got to show that you can do it. Also, people have to trust you, you know, and, you know, people do take it on face value that if you say you're a writer, they'll believe you, which still amazes me now. Um, you know, I think oh, I'm a writer. Goes, oh, yeah, of course you are. Um, so yeah, if you don't have any examples already, you're going to have to find ways of, of getting some experience and getting something to show to future paying clients. These are client testimonials. Always make sure you get testimonials, especially at the beginning. And then from there, you can start building up and then that might be the opportunity to niche down if you haven't done so already. One of the tips I saw recently was, I've forgotten her name, but her website's writing Revolt. And she suggests if you don't have anything, then either get some blog posts on your actual website yeah, or use something like Medium or guest post somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's also a good idea. Yeah, I mean, if you can, if you can write on your own website, then, then that's going to make a difference. I mean, like, the more you write for other people, the less time you have to write your own content which is the problem I have at the minute um but yeah and then again if you're wanting to niche if you're going to produce a blog about something within that topic then it shows people that you know what you're talking about because you can just point them to your website and go yeah here's here's how I've described it for for my readers so yeah so definitely yeah writing your own blog is a is a good thing to do and it's good practice as well I think like I look back on the first post I wrote for the writer's cookbook in 2014 and uh I don't stay on the page very long. Let's say that. <laughs> I, have, I do have a tendency to waffle in my own my own stuff. I get quite excited about whatever it is I'm writing about. 
you know, and then I go off. So, so yeah, it's also good practice to, to edit brutally your own writing, I think. Yeah, be as brutal as possible. And then some, probably. Yeah. I'm quite a harsh editor. <laughs> Would you suggest similar tips then for someone to get into copywriting or slightly different if they want to learn more about the selling side of things rather than the marketing side? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you wanted to do the old school ad writing, um, which people still do, of course, um, yeah, that is a different skill set. It's not, it's not something that I do. I'm not a fan of sales writing. Um, that I would definitely say you're going to need some advice on. Um, you don't have to spend money. Well, you're going to have to spend something, but you can, you can learn about ad writing uh, online. You can read the old, the old school um, David Ogilvy and uh, Robert Capels and stuff like that, and you will learn how to write. And in the last eighty years since David Ogilvy first started. He's obviously dead now. Um, you know that that stuff about writing ads that is that is still valid. You know that that stuff about this is how you entice the reader. You can you can teach yourself, I think, but there's certain tools and and things that you're going to use to entice the reader and to persuade them to buy something that I think you don't always get in content marketing and other types of copywriting like blogs. So there's a, a definite art to that, I think. Yeah, copywriting is much more about psychology, I think, than people mm. realize. And it's almost you yeah. need to be a better psychologist and salesperson than you do writer for copywriting yeah. to be effective. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's probably fair. And I think in a way it's tied to the old style of journalism, you know, where you're hounding people on the doorstep. You know, you've got to have a certain mentality for that. And that was why I didn't, that was one of the reasons I didn't really go into journalism. You know, I didn't really fancy that. I did do that a little bit, uh, writing for the newspapers, you know, and it's, you go and sit in somebody's living room and ask them questions about horrible stuff and you go, oh, this is not fun. That's sorry. I get I'm off on a tangent now, but yeah, it's that, it's definitely a, a skill and a, and a mentality and a, a willingness to work in a particular way. I think that might be at odds with the way other writers work just circling back to the journalism thing because that's another type of writing people confuse because they almost kind of group all sorts of non-fiction writing together even though they're all they vastly do. different mm. so how does journalism differ from something like content marketing or copywriting to be a good journalist i think you have to be um you have to be quite spare with your writing one of the first things they teach you because when when you do a journalism course it's Surprisingly, not a lot is about the writing, but what they do teach you is there is a module on on structuring your your articles. And what you have to learn to do very quickly is if you imagine it like a like a pyramid, but an inverted pyramid. So you put everything that's most important at the top, the least important stuff goes at the bottom because your editor is going to edit from the bottom up. So if you're writing, you know, about a, a new shop that's opened on your local high street, and if you said oh, and the shop is here and it's called this, and you put that at the bottom, that's going to be edited out first. So what you learn to do is it's a particular structure so that you put all the key information. It's like a press release. You put all the key information at the top, then anything like a quote from the, the owner of the shop or the mayor who's opened the shop goes down the bottom. So if there isn't enough room in the print, that will be edited out, but the key information is still there. So it's yeah, it's a very different a different style. Um, there's not much space for for padding, for waffle, for repetition. You've you've got to really cut to the chase and give people the information that they need quickly. And so if they don't keep reading, 
they skim it, they've got the key information, they turn the page to do it again. One thing I have noticed, um, quite a lot of journalists have been moving into content marketing, I guess, because journalism jobs are drying up, but content marketing is on the rise. And their kind of research skills have been really useful because they know how to source mm. the experts to interview and therefore add more depth to the content that they're writing for people. Yeah, yeah, that would uh, that would be handy, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, uh, one, one of the things we learned was that your little black book is going to be one of your most essential tools. And now I suppose you'd have a virtual version, but yeah, your contacts in the sector and especially if you're going to niche if you've got somebody on on speed dial that you can call and say look I'm writing a piece about this can you give me a quote can you give me some background information it's going to make life easier however I would say that I wouldn't let that put you off if you don't have that journalism background because you'll find now that it's a lot easier to reach out to people you know web 2.0 which is where people come back to you rather than you just shouting at them it, it means that people are a lot more open um and more willing to to engage with you so you know like for instance i'm a big fan of um mark schaefer i love mark schaefer's stuff and very early on when i was trying to build up my blog i wrote a review of one of his uh, content books and I thought, oh, you know, I'd really like to just quote him. So I sent sent Mark Schaefer an email. I was like, oh, I can't believe I'm Mark Schaefer. And said, can I quote you? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Thanks very much. Because nobody's going to turn down free promotion. So if you don't, if you don't, if you think, oh, I don't know an expert, reach out to somebody on, on Twitter is probably the easiest because I think the famous people are a bit more comfortable with that. Just tweet them and say, look, I'm writing about this. You're the expert. Could I quote you? Who's going to say no to that? You know, you're not selling them something. You're not asking them for your for their time. If you could say, "Oh, I'd like to quote this section from this blog you wrote, or this article that you published, or this book," you've done the work for them. You know, and nobody's nobody's ever going to turn that down, unless you, you know, some like the other political party to them or whatever. You know, but generally, if you say to somebody, "I'd like to quote you," they're going to say, "Yeah, go ahead." So I think I think that's nice, and that's a bit more democratic now that the information is not all held by a small group of, of journalists or PR experts or anything, you know, it's the information is available to everybody if you know where to look and how to ask. When Ellie and I decided to do interview season, I was like bricking it, emailing people, asking them to be on the podcast. And I think we've had something like an 80 to 90% response rate when I've mm -hmm. asked people. And the only people who haven't replied, I know are exceptionally busy and notoriously bad at replying to emails and might have been like, well, I'll wait and see what these interviews look like when they're live. Because I was like organizing interview season three months before we even released anything. Yeah. It baffled me initially that people were replying. But then I thought, well, actually, it's free promo to them, but it's also yeah. free promo to us. So yeah. it works both ways. And it yeah, helps more people because it's definitely. kind of a group effort rather than just one person. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think I think that's that's the nice thing about how how the internet has evolved. And you know, I mean, you and I know lots of copywriters, and they're all very supportive of each other. And we do chat sometimes. And yeah, I think that's nice. It's it is a group effort. There's a joint effort. You know, people are willing to to get involved. And yeah, who doesn't want free publicity? You know, it's a, it's always a good thing. Exactly. Yeah. Why do you think then that networking is an important part of being any sort of writer and also being self-employed? How else are people going to find out about you? You know, it's it. networking is, I hated networking. I mean, I still do. I don't, don't do it in the same way anymore. I, went, I used to go to the local networking events and I always used to get stuck with somebody who had no interest in what I did 
was never going to buy from me, was going to tell me their life story because I'm really, really bad. I'm very British. And I'm like, yes, I'll just stand here and listen to you. He said, well, thanks, great to meet you. I'm going to go somewhere else. I would never do that. So I used to always just listen to people. But it, it's how you it's how you get known. You know, if you're self-employed, you're sitting in your room on your own, you can tell people you're a writer. Well, who are you going to tell? There's nobody there. I think the key with networking is, is you pick a group, whether that's in person or online, and you just go, you attend the meetings as often as you can. It's like... If you could, you know, it's like content marketing on a smaller scale, you're going to be helpful to people. Listen to what it is that they want, you know, listen more than you talk, which is hard for me because um, I never stop talking. Um, but, you know, listen for and look for opportunities where you can help somebody. You know, they always say, you know, if you meet somebody at, at an event, follow up with them on LinkedIn and send them a useful article. That can be a good thing if you can introduce them to somebody. I spent probably a good two years networking. Um you know, and attend probably about a, a year of going to pretty much anything that was going, whether it was really appropriate or not. What I did was I used to go to, um, you know, Andrew and Pete, obviously, um, from Atomic. Before they started their membership, they had a face-to-face networking event every month on a Friday morning at a local hotel where they'd, they'd hire out the, the restaurant. And I went every month for two years. And I used to get up and do my 60 second speech and choke every single time. I hated it. And they used to have a thing where you take your business cards and if there's somebody you heard doing their 60 second pitch, that, oh, that sounds interesting. I'd like to speak to them. You'd swap your business cards. So you'd have two five minute slots where you'd speak one on one with that person. Nobody ever, ever wanted to speak to me, probably because my 60 second pitch was so bad. So oh that's a tip. If you're going networking, work on your 60-second pitch. And after two years, and I've been going every every month for two years, and that was at about the point where Andrew and Pete started to wind it down so they could focus on building the membership. Then, after those two years, then people came to me. And I think 99.9% of my work has come directly or indirectly from being part of the Atomic community. It's either, you know, somebody that Andrew and Pete know, um, somebody that I've met at their events or that's been a referral I, I can't think of off the top of my head any piece of work that I've done that hasn't come through that that relationship somewhere I think networking is free marketing is, is the way to look at it you've got to go and invest your time you know maybe you can eat a lot more fried breakfasts than you want to but <laughs> it's ultimately less labor intensive I think than even writing your own content or creating a video or even updating your social media. What I would say is if you can find one, I quite like them where there's there's going to be some kind of presentation. So, you know, you're actually going to hear something so you're going to learn something as well as just, you know, listen to Jeff from accounts who's just going to throw his business card at you whether or not you're interested. So I think I think something with a little bit of focus is, is quite nice because then you've got a point of, of reference for the the coffee table. Oh, you also stand beside the coffee table. That is a really good place to stand because everybody comes to the coffee table. However, never offer to pour somebody a drink because you'll spill it all over yourself. See, this is why I'm clumsy. <laughs> see, I could never mind being a war reporter. I can't even serve somebody a cup of coffee without throwing it all over them. So, yeah, lighter by the coffee table, comment on the biscuits. That will be my advice. How many times did you spill coffee over yourself just out of curiosity? Oh, I don't know. I can count. I mean, I, I spill something on myself pretty much every day. So there was there were definitely a couple of times where I dropped the milk jug or I'd trip over something on my way to the coffee table or uh, I've definitely lost count of how many times I've pressed the button and squirted coffee onto my tea bag. Ooh. 
because they're not clearly labelled. That happens all the time. So if you if you ever go to a networking event, there's lots of cups with tea bags floating. That's me because I don't know the difference between hot water and coffee. I just <laughs> press the button. Uh, yeah. So so We've yeah. All done it. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. Yeah, I do it all the time. It's been quite nice over the last year not having to leave the house and you know ruin somebody's coffee. Would you say networking is the best way then for newbie writers to avoid falling into the kind of super lower paid? client work that's like a penny or a cent per word yeah I mean certainly people if people get to know you and it, it's it like again like the no like and trust thing they're going to feel more invested in you if you if you're helpful to somebody um you give them valuable advice you'd send them a link they're gonna they're gonna feel not exactly a responsibility but they'll feel more inclined to want to work with you honestly I think anything you can do to avoid those penny of words things you know, if you're going to tell people that you're a writer, once you make that decision and then you are a writer and then you have to charge your worth and it might be lower than for somebody like us who's been doing this for 20 years or more. But that doesn't mean that you should only work for a penny and you should never work for a penny you would because then you're restricting yourself to I can only write 300 words, whereas you might actually find that 320 words would help you express something better, but you're not allowed those extra 20 words. So I think, yeah, I think if you can avoid them wherever possible, then yeah, definitely do that. It does baffle me on how many writer job sites that are like, we're for the writers, and then they advertise these really low-paying jobs that are like a couple of cent a word. And if you translate that into UK money, it's even worse. Yeah, yeah, it is. This could be an entire episode on its own of ranting about, about those kind of things. I mean, I did sign up to one just to try and see what it looked like. I wasn't going to do any work. I thought I'm quite curious to see what it looks like from the inside. And what I did find was really, really hard to actually find opportunities. So I don't, I, you know, I don't know how people actually even make their one cent a word because I couldn't, you know, I went in because I thought, well, people do this. How do they do it? So I went and had a look and it was very mystifying. Yeah, some of them really are. You've got sites that are kind of not so marketplacey, but they're more like job advertisement sites like ProBlogger. But then you've got sites like Upwork and Fiverr, and I'm sure most people have um, heard of them. I know a lot of people use Fiverr, for example, for um, book covers, sometimes even finding an editor. But would you recommend sites like Upwork or Fiverr as starting points for writers if they don't have the connections or the confidence to go to these networking events? No, I wouldn't. And because I feel that what those sites do is they create a race to the bottom because I appreciate you don't have the contact or the confidence and you think, oh, I need to start somewhere. And it looks it looks on paper like like this is a good opportunity. But you're doing yourself a disservice, but you're doing your fellow writers a disservice and anybody else who comes after you because what you're saying to the clients is yeah I'll 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 work really hard for you like a, a skibby um and you don't have to pay me very much and the other thing that, that does is that that creates resentment because if somebody says to you I'm going to pay you a fiver can you write me a 500 word blog you're going to think Ugh. you know and that's the more you do it the less inclined you're going to feel to do that work and you might not do such a good job we've all done it we've all taken jobs because we think we should and you've actually realized it's not the right fit for you but rather than saying that you just labor through it and probably what you produce is fairly bad I can think of at least one occasion where I did that where I got paid but I didn't really get much feedback and I wonder I did wonder if they ever used that 
that copy because it was something I was it was something science related that I didn't know anything about. You know, I thought I should do it. So it's, I just think it just doesn't help anybody. You know, from a customer's point of view, I can understand the appeal of something like that because you want to save money. But really, you're if if you actually think you need an expert to do something for you, then you should pay them accordingly for their time and their skill and all of the effort they put into to learn how to do this thing that you can't do yourself. And you should never ask somebody to work for a fiver. You know, and if you if you think, well, I can't, I, I can't afford to pay them five hundred pounds. Well, that's fine. There are people who are cheaper, but it doesn't have to be a all or nothing. And I just, I don't think it does you any good. If you can avoid them, I would, I would always say, you know, avoid them if you can. You know, there are there are other options. I don't know about you, but I've noticed a pattern with lower paying clients. And that's that they are pickier than higher paying clients. Oh, yes, like, definitely. The higher paying ones are like, okay, we're paying you because you're an expert. We trust your judgment. Away you go almost after like sending you the brief and maybe doing a call. Whereas I have found lower paying clients nitpick and probably think they could do it themselves if they had the time, but mm. they want to outsource it. And because of that, they give you feedback or they have this kind of vague idea in their head of what they don't want, but then they don't know how to communicate what they do want. And it's the what they do want that's actually the important part of the process. Yeah. And I think also I think writers fall foul of that more often than other creators because if you if you wanted a logo, you know for a fact that you can't put that together yourself. If you want a website, you know you don't know how to build it, you don't know how to code it. But when it comes to writing, everybody or almost everybody can literally put pen to paper and make marks on it. And so everybody thinks I can write. And it's it is that thing of, you know, they're not communicating with you, but they also don't appreciate what you're trying to do, which is why they're looking on a site like Fiverr. It's really, it's really just to save them a bit of time. It's not really because they think you're the expert. They just can't be bothered to write this themselves. And then you, because they're paying you very little, they still think they should get as much from you as possible, which is why you get into this nitpicking and poor communication. And you're probably also going to get a bad, bad feedback at the end of it, which isn't going to help you get more five pound jobs. Yeah, and so let's not forget five pounds for five hundred words is not minimum wage either. No, no, it isn't. It's it's nothing, you know, and. Also, I don't know, I suppose you could put in your own rules, but how often are they, do they come back, you know, because if you have to edit it or add something else to it, that's taking more of your time and you're still only getting that initial fiver. I assume, I don't know, I've never done it, but. Yeah, generally you only get paid once regardless of the rounds of edits and stuff. I think some people specify how many rounds of edits they get, but some people obviously if they're not aware and they do fall prey to a pickier client, then they might fall into the trap of just endless round of edits and they're only ever paid a fiver. And yeah. of course, you're going to edit the post yourself before you send it to someone. And that in itself takes more than an hour when you're doing all the research and the writing and the planning yeah. and the editing. And then if they come back with that, you're basically probably going to end up with less than a quid an hour. Yeah. That's not sustainable. No, it isn't. Um, yeah. And I, I think I think people don't really think that through. I mean, another thing about those sites is that often, you know, people aren't all from the UK. So, you know, there are maybe you might get a virtual assistant and you're going to pay them less because in the Philippines, minimum wage is lower. And of course, there are benefits to that. But on the other hand, I do think, Personally, that if you want a writer, you should have a writer who's a native speaker of whatever language you want. And so I always feel quite uncomfortable if somebody 
if I see somebody advertising themselves as a writer, but they're not a native English speaker, you know, I think you've got I me. Mean, my, my younger brother, he lives in Belgium. He's been there 15 years and all of his friends speak perfect English, much better than my Dutch, obviously. But there are still little mistakes that they make that I notice because I'm a native English speaker. And and so actually for my, for my brother's a musician. So I actually edit his copy because he's been out of the UK for such a long time that he actually can't write in English anymore. And wow. I think I think you've got to be really, really careful that if you want to communicate a message that you get somebody who understands the nuances of the language, you don't have to be a, an English graduate. You, you know, you don't have to sit with a dictionary. But I do think that you've got to be careful that you get somebody who can communicate on your behalf effectively. And somebody on Fiverr who's not a native English speaker might not be able to do that as well. I personally don't think they can. I have actually seen more and more advertisements for writers specifying that they want native English speakers, but they go Mm -hmm. further than that. They specify native British or American or Aussie or Canadian or all the other different kinds of English because there are differences even among English. Yeah, there are. I mean, I've worked with Americans a couple of times um, and I find it really, really hard to to write well for the Americans because I'm just not hyper enough. <laughs> you know, I do have I do have an American client at the moment, and it's been a bit of a labor of love to try and get it because her style is up here, and my style's about here, and I just I can't get that level of excitement. You know, I I don't think it's entirely unreasonable because it is it's a completely different style the way the americans like to be communicated with you know they're very direct whereas we're, you know we're british we love a euphemism you know <laughs> and if we can if we can go around the houses with something we will and it, it is it's hard so yeah i wouldn't not work with an american but i would always be a little bit more hesitant i think yeah you've got to have that understanding of a your audience but also be the company that you're working for as well and if you can kind of communicate on their sort of wavelength if you will yeah yeah I, I agree with that it's it's nuances isn't it and you know it's not a bad thing that you don't understand them it's a cultural thing but I think you've got to be careful have you got any more tips then for anyone looking to get started or maybe take their um writing business to the next level yeah I, I would think if if you don't have any sort of experience or you'd like to improve what was probably a good idea is to follow people online and see how they do it so if you want to work for Coca-Cola, go and look and see how they do it. It might not always be obvious who the, the marketer is, but if you go and have a look at their blogs, um, their social media, any sort of online communications and video um, and podcasts as well, because all of that stuff is scripted, it's not always ad-lib, and just get a feel for how they do it. And also look at how they engage with people. So if somebody comments, how, what's their style, how do they respond back to them you know it's that thing that you study at journalism schools you have a swipe file so if you see something you like keep a hold of it and use that as a reference um and look at different types of writing so if, if you know do have a look at sales posts because you do need them sometimes so go and have a look at sales posts look at blogs look at product descriptions and start to get a feel for how people do it um and don't be afraid to ask questions you know if you're following a, a writer or a content marketer online ask them a question again it goes into that thing about free publicity if you they have put themselves up as the expert then they should be happy to answer your questions um you can you can learn a lot without too much investment you you might want to buy a couple of copywriting books a couple of content marketing books you can get them for for cheap on uh, amazon other online retailers are available 
Um, but you know, you can you, you can teach yourself, um, you know, without having to to spend too much money. There are courses. Uh, I think if you want to course, go and have a look at the Pro Copywriters website. Um, they probably recommend Andy Maslin. I read a lot of his stuff when I was starting out. Just be wary of anything that you see that's advertised on the back of a magazine that's a writing course, you know, because that's about the numbers, you know, that's the number crunching. They're not necessarily going to teach you the skills. So, yeah, so if you did want a course, have a look at the Pro Copywriters, which is the, the online home of people who do this for a living. So go and have a look at them, you know, ask a question there if you can, follow them on Twitter and ask a question. But yeah, just be wary about who you give your money to if you do decide to go down the route of an investment in a formal course. I did Copy Hackers Copy School a few years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's obviously mega expensive. I didn't pay for it, my employer did. But I did learn a lot, but it's like Mm. there is so much there. It almost makes you feel a little bit overwhelmed. And I would certainly say if you're just starting out, do go for something a little bit smaller and build up to something as in-depth as that. Yeah. Because you want to see, you kind of want to test the waters and see if this is definitely what you want to be doing long term. Yeah, yeah, that's also true. Yeah, so don't, you know, don't don't go out and buy your own golf clubs if you're just going to be playing for a couple of couple of weeks and then you give it up. You know, if if this is what you really want to do, then you build up to it. Don't just throw all your money at it straight away because you might also start to get to know people who can recommend resources that are just as good but cheaper. So get a feel for it and, and see what's out there. Ask for recommendations if you if you can be part of a group. You know, ask people what, what they did, what they would use, what they wouldn't use. Definitely ask people what they wouldn't use. I think is is a good one, you know, things to avoid. Just ease into it gradually and, you know, don't make any big decisions. If you're not certain it's what you want to do or you're still learning and you want to know which which direction to take, then give yourself a bit of time. And like you said, talk to people who are already in that situation and read the books because obviously books are much cheaper than investing in a course. And sometimes Definitely. you can learn just as much as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially with content marketing, because it's quite new. There isn't um, there isn't a, an actual uh, organisation or industry body for content marketing. The Content Marketing Institute is not an institute as we would know them in the UK. There's no accreditation. There's no real proper courses. They're just called an institute because it's American. The Americans like the word institute, you know, and Joe Pilotti's creating what he does, but he's not an educator and he's not going to educate so just just be yeah wary of, of that that some of it you just have to learn yourself and and through observation and through doing that's a useful skill anyway though as a writer because you're going to yes. need those research skills to write the client work but also then that can help you with putting yourself out there more for networking for sending cold emails if you do do some form of marketing like podcasting or videos it helps you yep. get over that barrier a little bit easier yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's yeah. I think that's that's a good good way of looking at it. And yeah, you're going to have to learn research skills, and you're going to have to start digging around. So for your own business and benefit first, and yeah, it's definitely a good a good jumping off point. Yeah, exactly. One question we ask all our interviewees then is, what's one book that changed your life? Nonfiction. It would be um, Peter Bowman's The Welfare Writer and what he uses the term uh, commercial writer, but he he means copywriter. What I liked about it was because I'd been writing off and on for a lot of years, but my, my actual employment was in admin. 
And I'd got into a cycle where once you do admin and you do it well, you're never going to get out of it. And I was starting to panic because I thought, you know, I've spent 10 years being an administrator. I really want to be a writer. How am I going to do it? And I can't remember how I came across his book, but I connected with it completely because what he said was you can be a writer, you can be paid to be a writer, and you can be paid well. And that that was that's the message in in his book is you you can be paid for this and you should be paid well for this. And don't let other people tell you that you can't. And I read that at the same time as I read um, Tim Ferriss's The Four Hour Work Week, and that's about working online predominantly. And the two books together, I thought, made me realise that there was actually something other than sitting in an office for two and tapeny an hour doing this unappreciated, undervalued work. And admin is, it's a skill. It's not um, valued as much as it should be. But yeah, so definitely Peter Bowman's The Welfare Writer made a massive difference to me. And there's, there's two actually, I think he's written a sequel to that now. But he, he gives lots of good examples of people who do niche things. So he's got a great example of somebody who writes case studies. Her name is actually Casey. So I think she had to be a case study writer. I think there's a law there that says, you know, that you have to do that. For that. It's called nominative determinism. Yes, that's right. There is. Yeah, like that estate agent <laughs> called Holmes. You know, yeah. Amazing. So yeah, definitely. Um fiction, I don't know. I, I I get very involved with my fiction and it's it's hard to pick one. I think um definitely Philip Pullman's Northern Lights trilogy, which of course is is aimed at children, uh or young people, but I reread the Northern Lights trilogy every so often and I just I, the world he creates I just think you know, I would love to be able to create a world like that you know I don't I don't write fiction because I'm too lazy but his stuff um and also when I was when I was very young I used to read a lot of Diana Wynne Jones and I think I like that because that's it's that fantasy that that world building literally world building that's so different and I reread a Tale of Time City at least once a year, if not twice. I don't read a lot of fantasy and sci-fi, but those those I do. Um, and I think maybe uh, people who write for younger audiences do that better because I think children are better at world building and they're more receptive to it. And so I think you get a better experience because the authors aren't coming with any preconceived ideas and they know that their readers aren't either. And so you get, you get a, a very visual world and I'm a visual reader so I can always see it in my mind so I, I get quite excited if there's something that's richly described that, that draws me in and I, I do I don't read a lot of adult fantasy and I think people who do it well are those people who can make it believable and I think that's what that's what Philip Pullman does that's what Diana Wynne Jones did is to to draw you in and and make you believe that 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 is a, a place that if you were very lucky you could go and visit it too but you can't if only the other thing I quite like about children's fiction and just writing for a younger audience in general is they tend to get to the point faster. Like there's yeah. no room for purple prose or any of that. And it almost is a lesson in copywriting and yeah. sometimes journalism. You've got to get to the point or your reader is going to put that book down and never come back. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I mean, you know, you couldn't get away with a Thomas Hardy 10 page description of a, a field leading up to it. I can't be bothered to read that. So no child's going to read that. Yeah, definitely. And it's such a good example of how to write well, but sparingly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because the best copy is written to be understood by children. It's not written to be understood by people with like a PhD. 
because yeah. it's harder for people to understand what the bloody hell you're on about. Yeah, which is why you should also employ a copywriter rather than doing it yourself. Exactly. You know, because they're communicating with people who are like them rather than people who are like you. That's how I always that, that's how I always sell it. I'm I'm writing for myself because I'm potentially your customer. Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it, I think. Where can our lovely listeners go to find out a little bit more about you then? You can find me on my website, which is just goodrunlorette.com uh, and on Twitter. Um, occasionally, I make an appearance there. I'm also on LinkedIn, but I don't use it very often. So yeah, my website or Twitter or send me a message. Uh, I'm happy to answer anybody's questions. Um, talk about writing, talk about fiction, cheese. If you'd like to talk about cheese, <laughs> message me and we'll talk about cheese. Because I do oh, like God, to Don't talk say about that to my co-host. Don't say it. Don't let Ellie hear you say that. She's not allowed cheese, but she will talk about it all day. Uh, has she um, has she played um, cheese or font? What is that? It's a game and it used to be on an app. And it's where, you know, how fonts all have weird names. Yeah. So what they do is they just show you a word and you say, is it a cheese or is it a font? Oh my god, that sounds amazing! I need to play that. Oh it is god. so addictive because you, you you get really involved and you go, "That's definitely cheese. I've heard of that. I've had that. No, it's a font." <laughs> it is. Yeah, find it. It's you will lose a few hours of your day, but you will feel so satisfied and hungry at the same time. Definitely cheese or font. I have added that to the notes to link to it in the show notes, <laughs> just for anyone else that is curious. I hope it's still there. My husband was showing it to me a couple of years ago, and we just. Yeah. And you do, you get really into it and you do argue because you go, don't be stupid. Of course, that's a font. And it turns out, you know, it's like a, like a Turkish cheese that nobody's ever heard of. So, yeah, <laughs> Def- definitely check that one out. Amazing. And if you are looking to get started networking, do you come join Goodrun and I and Atomic as well? Because it's really definitely. lovely and friendly and supportive and fun and your brain's probably going to explode from all the workshops in there. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's a nice one because there's no hard sell from anybody, you know, and people are always willing to answer your questions. I've been in groups, I've been in paid groups where you get crickets. So, yeah, it's a nice, <clears throat> it's a nice friendly one. And uh, come and join in and we will be there and we will talk about writing with you. We will. <laughs> it's been great catching up with you, Gudrun. Thank yes, you so you much too. for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Did you find this episode enlightening? Don't forget to hit that shiny, shiny subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Or if you're watching on YouTube, give us a subscribe and hit the like button. It really helps other writers find our videos and helps us know what kind of content you want more of. And don't forget, you can support the Writer's Mindset over on Patreon for less than your favourite coffee per month. Join our growing gang of writers to get early access to episodes, bonus content and monthly writing catch-ups with us. Visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset to come join us. And don't forget to come check out our free Facebook group, which you can find at writerscookbook.com forward slash Facebook group. We're in there every day talking all things writing, mindset, reading and occasionally pets. So it'd be great to see you in there. See you next time.